thought you'd locked Toby Haydog outside, but instead you've locked him in here with us. Well, I'm at a train station because we do all the glamorous locations with this podcast where a gentleman has kindly come to meet me, which is very generous of him. So we're going to ask him to introduce himself and tell me why I'm talking to him about Doctor Who. Um, I'm Rio Fanning. Uh, I played Harker in Doctor Who. Uh, the horror of Fang Rock, if I remember rightly. And I presume that's why Toby's talking to me. And uh, we've, we've sort of got it playing on a, on a funny piece of kit I've got with me. Is it bringing back any memories? Not a thing. <laughs> I didn't even know Colin Baker was in it. Tom. Tom? No, um, Colin... Uh, uh, Colin Douglas. Colin Douglas. I didn't even know he was in it. Oh, he kills you. He does, yes. Perhaps yes, that's why yeah. you, you've put it from your mind. <laughs> Bloody actors. <laughs> and do you remember... Um, talk of Bakers, though. Do you, do you remember Tom? I met him a couple of times socially, um, but um, without much contact, if you know what I mean, even yeah. if it was socially. It was at, um, once in a pub or once in a party and just pass, hello, how are you, sort of thing, and that was about it. And uh, he's the Louise Jameson there as well, playing his yes, companion. Yes, I liked her very much, I must say. God, so much time has passed, it's ridiculous. Do you get, do you get much, um, many people getting in touch with you about Doctor Who? It's a funny old job, isn't it? Yes, there's, um, there's a sort of, um, I don't know, a crank network is the only way I can describe <laughs> it. Um, I keep getting cards, and would I sign my name, and an occasional photograph would I... And I keep thinking, good God, that's, that's not me anymore, this photograph, you know, as a young man. <laughs> well, and I, and I guess you must have been working all the time, because you're, you're one of those actors that seems to crop up in, in everything. Well, I did, I did very well as an actor in, 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 in rough terms. I wouldn't say star terms, but um, I did all right. I did enough work to keep me alive. And uh, I did better as a writer. <laughs> yeah, so what, what came first? Did you, you'd you started acting? Oh, I was, I was acting, yes, yes. So what made you turn to the pen? Well, I, my first love has always been the stage, and therefore, to some extent, I could not stop writing stage plays. And... Um, my father wrote plays as well, and so I suppose I was taking after him. And um, I was putting them on myself in various fringe theatres, which existed in those days. The Oval, um, the, there was a theatre in, in Drury Lane, the name of which I've forgotten, and so on. But then um, I, was, I was obviously earning my living as an actor, but then I wrote, um, decided... My then wife said to me, why don't you write something that people can understand? <laughs> so I thought, what does she mean by that? And I realised that to a great extent, the stuff I was writing for on the stage was, would be described as aesthetic. They were experimenting with, uh, with the form and so on. So I thought, maybe she's right. Maybe I should try and write something. So um, I decided I'd write a um, television play. 
So I wrote a television play, and um, I um, I remember my eldest son reading it, and then he eventually said, "What's it called, Dad?" And I said, "I haven't really come up with a title yet." And he said, "You should call it Street Dreams." So I called it Street Dreams, and I, at the time I was working as an actor in uh, District Nurse, playing Doctor Ocasio, and Tony Holland. Julius Smith was the producer, Tony Holland was the script editor. So I spoke to Tony on the set and I said, uh, I'm going to bore you, I want you to read a play I've written. And he said, right, send it to me. So I did, and I, I'd sent it to other people and um, had got the usual replies, oh, love the play, love the characters, but unfortunately it's not something we're doing at the moment, or we've all got something in the pipeline that is just like it and so on. So you get the praise, but not the... Not the order. Okay. <laughs> and uh, but anyway, Tony rang me and he started off the same thing. I loved it, and I thought I was going to say it. But but then he said, "I'm I don't do I'm not in single plays. I'm in serials, and so there's nothing much I can do about it." But he said, "I'm starting up a, a series, uh, a soap called E8, and would you be interested in writing for that?" And I thought, "Yeah, I would." So it became EastEnders. And uh, I wrote for EastEnders then. I wrote episode 13, I think. Uh, no experience of writing for television or anything, but um, he was very helpful. And I wrote then for more or less 10 years, I think, wrote for EastEnders, but under the pseudonym of Michael Rabate, it's not Rio Fanning. And um, that's what started me writing. As I say, my, my accountant of the time thought I should keep my two businesses, the writer and the actor, separate, as it was easier for him to claim. I could claim, oh, there's me getting killed. As a writer, I could claim for uh, buying paper, uh, ink and computers and accessories of various things. But as an actor, I couldn't. So if I kept the two separately, you see, I could, I could claim for clothes that I bought, haircuts as an actor, but not as a writer. No one cares what a writer looks no. like. <laughs> so we kept them separately. So I wrote as Michael Rabates and acted as Rio Fanning. Ah, and so well, I think that's a nice piece of trivia that we've uncovered. And um, do you have a preference, uh, writing or acting? I, th in my heart, I prefer acting. I think, but in practicality, it's much easier to write than it is to pack yourself up every morning and go off. <laughs> At least I can sit at home and walk the dogs and, <laughs> and laze. <laughs> yeah. So what, what had inspired um, the acting? What, where, what, what was your background? Well, I'm, I'm Irish, as you know, and um, my father uh, was wanted... To, I think my father wanted to go into the, into the theatre. He wanted to be uh, a, a director, a producer, as they were called in those days, and, and occasionally write. Um, so he wrote a couple of plays, which the Abbey did in Dublin. And um, my uncle was, ran an amateur dramatic society, so it was sort of floating around in there. My grandmother wouldn't let my, act, my father become an actor or become a director, kept him out of the theatre altogether. She owned a newspaper, and therefore she put a tremendous pressure on him, which, of course, turned him into an alcoholic, and he drank himself to death eventually. But um, 
I was in some of the plays he wrote for um, for the Scouts ah. <laughs> things, and um, it's was suddenly in my blood, and I I, I just simply love being on stage. So, um, but I knew damn all about it. I had a bad squint, which didn't help, which was operated on eventually, and um, I, I I knew very little about the theatre, and I was. Um, um, I came over here uh, partly to get away from Ireland, which at the time was a very black Catholic country and I didn't like it at all, and partly just to expand and see what life had other than Ireland. And I was in the W.A. Smith's on the first weekend I was over here and I suddenly saw a paper called The Stage. And I didn't even realize there was a paper called The Stage. So I bought The Stage and I read it. And I suddenly saw these advertisements from drama schools. And I didn't... Drama school? I didn't think these things existed. So I was in Leicester at the time. So um, there was one drama school. I looked at the various costs and all the rest of it. And there was one drama school I could afford, which was um, the London School of Dramatic Art, which is disappeared now, known as the Pounds, Shillings and Pence Academy. And that did an evening class, which I could do, because I could work during the day and do the... So I trekked down to London and um, went and did an audition for it and so on, and they, um, they offered me a place. So I started um, learning how to act. And, and let me just jump quickly back while I remember to um, EastEnders because you mentioned Julia Smith. She, in her early days, directed a couple of Doctor Whos. She, she uh, did. Yeah. Yes, yeah, she did. And yes. she had quite a formidable reputation. But did you, what do you remember of Julia? Oh, she was a wonderful lady. She really was. I mean, uh, some people found her very tough. But I think, I think they pitied me in a way. <laughs> they patted me on the head a lot and uh, <laughs> kept me going. But she and Tony Holland were tremendously supportive and um, effectively, maybe I can write, but effectively they taught me how to write. And East End, I mean, you were there at the beginning. I, I mean, it was a huge gamble at the time oh, yes. for the BBC. In fact... Um, I can't quite remember what the original intention was, but uh, I do know that Alan Yentob, who was head of something or other in the BBC at the time, was not attracted to soaps. There was a lot of snobbery in the BBC about soaps at the time, and he didn't want to get involved in it. But I remember we were all called into a meeting one day and the the decision had been made that they would go ahead and try it for six months anyway. So we did. And here we still are. And it took off. And ten years is a long stint. It is, indeed. Um, I did other bits and pieces. Of course, I acted as well. But ten years, yeah, it was a long time. And you broke into television relatively early. I mentioned just before we started recording that, that uh, Z Cars, you were in the third episode of Z Cars. Third episode of Z Cars, which um, 
you and JG Devlin causing havoc in a pub. Isn't in it? a pub, that's right. And I remember um, I had to kill a policeman. I hit him with a iron bar. And sometime later, after I'd gone out, I was on the tube in London, and suddenly I was surrounded by three or four young men who said. <coughs> You were a tough guy on television last night. I'm tougher you now. And they, they beat me up. <laughs> they effectively smashed me around the face and threw me out of the train because I'd killed the policeman. Charming. Yeah, but also showed how ignorant people were. There's, there's still today people think that you are what you appear on the, on the television. They don't see characterization entering into it at all. If you're playing a murderer, then somehow you are a murderer. And, uh, and it was very much even stronger in those days. You were the baddie, and that was it. But I remember that. And I lost two teeth they knocked out. And um, <laughs> I wasn't amused. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, did you find that a thing, being Irish, though, that you were quite... Odd, that, that you would get typecast as, as ne'er-do-wells, or was it not so bad? It was, to some extent, a bit of typecasting and the Irish um, cliché. But only if people knew I was Irish. The thing is, one of the things about drama school was that I eliminated my Irish accent and I spoke much more English in those days than I do now. But, and in that case, I played all sorts of things, from doctors to policemen to... Thugs. <laughs> to um, to, to uh, men oh. who wash up at a light. Uh, there's t- actually two Irish actors in Horror of Fang Rock because there's you and Sean Caffrey. That's right. Uh, yeah. Who's playing English. Mm. Mm. Of course, you couldn't be an Irish actor and not be in Father Ted. I was briefly in right, <laughs> yeah. Father Ted. I don't think I was very good in it. In fact, um, they cast me in one part. Was a, in the same episode, there was another character that was much madder. I can't remember the character's name, but they cast me as that. But when I turned up onto the, onto the set, they had me down for Father Frost, whoever it was. And um, I didn't like playing him at all. <laughs> oh, so you turned up, you ended up playing a part that you didn't think you were playing? No. Oh, yes, I mean, yes. How odd. Yeah. So, so what, were your hi- what were your highlights on television then? As well? What jobs did you... I, was, I saw you in Juliet Bravo the other day and you were really horrible in that. Uh, you, were, you were a nasty piece of work in that. But... Where do you find Oh, I, I spend a lot of time on trains watching, <laughs> watching DVDs. Yes, Juliet Bravo. Um, I can't remember. I think eventually, perhaps... Dr. O'Casey in, in District Nurse was probably the most satisfying. Also, it was the first time I actually earned big money. I mean, actors weren't badly paid in those days. They're worse off now than they were then. But uh, nonetheless, most of the parts I played were down the list a bit in terms of payment. But Dr. O'Casey was one of the lead actors and suddenly I was affluent for a year or more. For three years I could yeah. <laughs> I could buy a new car. <laughs> right, yeah, nice well nice to have regular work, I guess. Mm. Well definitely. Indeed. 
And um, do any television directors stick in your mind as being particularly good? David Cunliffe of um, who was ITV, y, YTV when I first met him. I don't think anyone anticipated that Ballycus Angel would be quite the huge success it was, and you did those, didn't you? you did I did five episodes of that. But it was lovely working for it, it really was. Is it difficult when you're writing characters that have already been established and you have to, you know, did they give you guidelines, say, oh, so-and-so would never say that or do that? Well, there was a certain amount of that, and then you had to watch the episodes, of course, that had been done, and then you'd get the, the writer's handbook, so to speak, full of all sorts of instructions and so on. But in some way, I fitted into Ballycassandra quite easily and quite well, I thought. Um, perhaps because I was Irish. Um, mm. Dermot Boyd, there was another director that I liked working with, he was Ballycassandra. Um, and who else was on? There was a good crowd there, Chris Griffin, the producer, he was very, very good as well. At least from my point of view, I don't know what other people thought of. Yeah. I thought it was great. And it's a very different landscape now, isn't it, in, t- oh, in terms of um, how things are made? Because obviously when you're doing something like Doctor Who, the BBC was a huge infrastructure. And yeah. I, did, 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 I guess, you you know, people around the BBC knew who you were and you were on the end of a phone if they if they needed, you know, somebody like you to cast. You, you... I'd love to think that was so, but <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure at all. Um... I mean, people said hello to me in the corridors of the BBC. What that meant, I've no idea. But the complexity of the organisation was getting more and more complicated. I remember the EastEnders, for instance, when we first started uh, script meetings, there were Tony Holland, Julia Smith... Corin, Corin, somebody. Corin Hollingworth. Corin Hollingworth. Yeah. Uh, who was a, a, a deputy producer or associate producer. Um, there's Tony Holland. I'm talking about EastEnders, aren't I? Yeah. Yeah. There's Tony Holland, Julia Smith, obviously, and four writers. There's about ten of us in the in the room in a small room and. Um, Shepherd's Bush and then they moved out to Elstree and then I remember a couple of years after it started or so I was out in Elstree and there were two floors of offices were now EastEnders and I remember walking on one of the corridors looking at the names on the doors and saying who the hell are they I've never heard that name before and um, and a script meeting would be Something like 36 to 40 people sitting around the table. Lime. Mm. So, I don't know, I always feel that in the long run that sort of complexity worked against any series because there was too much argument and there are some people, writers, actors, producers, doesn't matter, who are natural power people and they can 
somehow get their own way all the time, and, and I never could get my way. <laughs> <laughs> you think you have to have quite a pushy personality to prosper? Well, pushy, I suppose, is one way of describing it, one element, but a lot of it had to do with tremendous certainty in themselves and confidence in themselves that um, if they had a thought then that was it the rest of the world had to have that thought um, so self-assuredness but it, it did make the meetings eventually often boil down into arguments uh, it went on for a long time between different factions if you like and there was a bunch of us that somehow didn't fit into all that and we'd sit there with our hands on our heads and our hands <laughs> and, you know, God, will you get on with it? And do you watch it today, EastEnders? No. Is that because it's changed or is it just not your It's because it's changed a lot. Not the show that you recognise? No, when, when I wrote for EastEnders, um, if I remember rightly... There were 16, 15, 16, 17 scenes. Um, now there's something like 64 scenes. Very short. And Tony Holland always wanted a, a, a biggish, a, a, not so much a long scene, but a major scene at the end of each episode that everything led to. And that's where the elements of the story that would be dealt with that week would be played out and the, and the cliffhanger set up for the following week and so on. Um, so the structure was much better, I thought. There was much better writing rather than quick clips, people standing, looking out windows, looking out doors and, you know. But I don't know, it's... That's just me. Other people may think it's great. But actually, it's not doing terribly well in the ratings at the moment, no, is it? No, no, So what do you, as a... I mean, you've, you, you, write, you write and you act, but what, what about as, a, as, a, as, a, as an audience member, what do you enjoy? Farce. Farce. Yeah. Good farce. I love comedy. Indeed. Um, I, what would I... If, if it was, I like Miranda. <laughs> Oh, yes. <laughs> For instance, watched her the other night. Um, and uh, I'm just trying to think. There are others, good good, good sitcoms and so on. But the madder they are, the better I like them. I love them when they're, when they're off the wall a bit. And you said it was the stage that first, first drew you. I mean, mm. it, it, the, most actors seem to prefer acting in the theatre, is that the case with you? Probably, because um, the connection between the actor, and this is a truism, the connection between the actor and the audience is a real one. It's, it's um, um, invigorating, it's um, supportive, and you're aware of the attention. Whereas the camera doesn't, to me, doesn't give me that at all in the same sense. You know, it's something rather impersonal, <laughs> just just looking at me. And um, there's nothing like making an audience hoot with laughter. <laughs> yeah. It's a great feeling. You probably wear that yourself. Well, it happens to me now and again, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if I'm doing it properly. And um, it's worth mentioning, of course, that we talk, we're talking about great um, television 
successes. Your wife was in Grange Hill. Indeed, for seven years. Seven years. More or less, yeah. And is that a job that follows her around? A bit, yes. A bit. Um, it's still used as um, publicity when she's on a tour or something. Karen Ford of Grange Hill, you know. And you think, who was? Can anybody be? Is anybody alive who was Grange Hill? Oh, she was one of my. When I was at school, she was one of my Grange Hill teachers. Well, so. There you go. <laughs> yeah, and they always stay with you, the Grange Hill teachers. They like, they like the teachers you never had at school. So yeah, she'll have a place in a generation's heart. Mm. Um, and uh, do you have any unfulfilled ambitions? No, no. Write a play for the West End, I suppose. As that used to be the pinnacle. Yeah. Although I've had, I've appeared in the West End once or twice, but uh, to actually write a play, particularly a funny play, would be great. And Doctor Who started 50 years ago this year. It started the day after John F. Kennedy was assassinated. Everyone remembers where they were when that happened. Do you remember that? Yes, I was standing looking at the television saying, I couldn't, can't believe this. And then going to the window to look out over, I was in, lived in a high-rise block in London, and look out over the window, uh, over the, the, the roofs, looking to see the, the nuclear lights start, because when he was shot, the first suspicion was that he'd been assassinated by the Russians. Um, it was for a couple of days before they withdrew that. Um, I thought that the final cataclysm was about to take place. That it would presage the end of the world. Goodness, very different times. Mm. And Ireland's a different place to the one you left as well. <clears throat> oh, very much so, indeed. Um, I mean... I'm not the. In fact, my experience of Ireland is almost a cliche. I mean, virtually every writer, actor of my age or younger even has much the same story to tell about the brutality in the schools and the, and the black clergy, all these sadists in skirts driving you into the ground. They were terrible indeed. Um, and I almost felt my father never supported me in it at all. I remember once Brother Kerens, who was one of the most unmitigated sadists had ever tried to teach children he should never have been allowed near. And I don't know how long it went on for, but I was up in front of the class, and I always remember this. The blackboard had two times six equals. And he wanted me to give the answer. And my brain just simply froze. I knew it was 12, but I couldn't tell him. I just froze. And I stood there, it seemed like all my life, I gathered it was about a half an hour, uh, with both hands stretched out. And he used to use um, uh, that plastic tubing that you put um, electric wires through. He used to use that as his weapon of choice. And he's hitting me alternately in each hand again and again and again and I don't know how long it went on for until the lay teacher next door suddenly crashed in and shrieked at us no way to treat a child and hit him and knocked him into the corner 
goodness me. And I remember I went home and my hands were so swollen I couldn't hold my knife and fork. And um, my father said, what's the matter with your hands? And I said, the euphemism in those days was, Brother Karen snapped me. And it's a question, well, what did you do? Not like, how dare he do that to... (laughs) So it left me with a sense that if anybody hit one of my sons at school, I'm dead. If anybody hit one of my sons at school, I was in like a shot complaining nobody was going to hit one of my kids. No. But um, I needed to get away from all that. And uh, it's... um, I've still got a house over there. I go back over. I'm going next week, actually. Yes, um, for three weeks. And have uh, you ever? I mean, that, that that episode that you described so evocatively. Does write? Do you ever try and use writing as a catharsis for things like that? Oh yes, yes. Um, I mean, again, when I look back over stuff I've written, I keep seeing the same themes lurking around in the shadows all the time. And you suddenly realise. But this is true of all writers. I think you're always writing about the same thing. Whatever happened. The surface changes and so on, but deep down inside, you're still plowing your way through the same marsh of terrible feelings or whatever it is that was dreadful. Indeed. Well, as you alluded, on the screen, uh, it's played out. You've been killed by Colin Douglas. <laughs> uh, so, I, uh, the Doctor Who fans listening, it's 50, 50 years old this year, so do you have a message to the Doctor Who fans who are listening, seeing as I've, you've, you've so kindly given your time to talk to me? Well, oh, it's difficult to know. It's just that you've been watching and listening to the right thing all these 50 years. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, Rio Fanning, thank you very much thank indeed. Thank you very much indeed, Robert. That's brilliant, thank you. My thanks to Rio, his charity, which we didn't talk about in the finished recording. Um, however, he asked if your donations could go to Hospices of Hope, which is in Seven Oaks in Kent, and looks after Romanian orphans, and is www.hospicesofhope, all one word, all lowercase, hospicesofhope.co.uk. Thanks if you can help with that very good cause. My next interviewee uh, has done lots of bits of bobs in Doctor Who. Bobs uh, being an appropriate word, considering his name. Um, And uh, has a very interesting and varied life outside of the show, and we touch upon that. And since I interviewed him, he's actually got a role in the new series. So lots of interesting things there uh, in the next edition of Toby Haydoke's Who's Round. Uh, Do keep listening if you can. Thanks very much for now. Goodbye. I genuinely would, all joking apart, genuinely do think that I could bring something um, different to the role of Doctor Who. I genuinely do think that. would love to play the part. Um, I would make him dark. I would make him a bit scary. Doctor Who. The Abandoned. The point of stillness. That is the point. How can I possibly work with this, 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 this nonsense? You have no idea of the agony that my tribe suffered because of the order. What is that noise? Shh. Look closely, man. There is something seriously wrong with the TARDIS leader. Ah! No! Doctor! Doctor! 
quiet, Mila. <laughs> You must do your penance, leader. No. How did you get into my TARDIS? Your TARDIS? Yes, my... <laughs> no, no, no! Life in the universe, everything we have ever known will be destroyed, ruined. Eternity, threatened, existence, question. We can't... Big Finish. We love stories.